Uh, Psalm 18 is a colossal psalm. Uh, The way we typically use psalms is we take a verse and put it behind a beautiful picture. And we have that there. And yes, uh, for those, our guests, our children have their own lesson. uh, And they are being dismissed right now. So if your children would like to go downstairs, you're welcome to walk them down, meet the leaders, see where they're meeting. And then welcome to join us back here. Um, We typically take one or two verses in Psalms. And then we use it for comfort. And that all ends at Psalm 18. Psalm 18, out of the first 20 psalms, is by far the longest. And it has some of the more serious themes uh, that we will see. Because it is 50 verses, uh, we're not going to be able to just go through line by line by line, typically how we do that in an expository way. uh, But we are going to look at the major thoughts and track with David's thinking as he puts this forward. And here's, here's a question I want to bring us back to. What does God want you to hear and do from Psalm 18? What action does he want changed? What thinking does he want changed? What thoughts about him does he want reshaped so it's more accurate? Right, we, have, we haven't come here to be entertained uh, we're, we're a poor entertainment industry here. We haven't come here to show off new clothes. We haven't come here to sing our favorite hymn or hear our favorite single verse. We have gathered to ascribe worship to God. That's what we do. We, that's what worship is. We ascribe worth to Him. David's going to help us do that this morning in 50 verses. Our primary need... Most of us is not information. It's transformation. And so when we look in God's word, what he desires to do by his spirit is to change us, transform us. See, this this is the trap that a lot of Bible studies fall into, the trap of knowing more about God or about scripture or about Jewish customs or about original languages. What we need to know is not more about God, typically, We need to know God experientially. And that's what comes out of Psalm 18. You have a man who's a gifted writer, songwriter, hymn writer, and he puts this in print and all these truths sort of rise up out. And so I'm going to put this statement forward uh, right here at the beginning of Psalm 18. People who know God that way, praise God. People who know God experientially, not just theoretically, not even just accurately theologically, but the people who truly know him experientially cannot help but praise God. That's all we're doing in, say, this morning's song set. We're trying to assist God's people to sing to him. The praise that we hope is already naturally in our heart. Worshippers don't merely agree with truth statements about someone or something. Worshippers praise someone or something. For instance, one guy may be, may be wowed and excitedly talk about Kyler Murray's rookie preseason NFL game and how he, he completed six passes of six for 44 yards at a 92.9 percentage. I mean, this guy's wild about this and he's sharing it with someone else who has zero interest at all. And he says, yes, that sounds like a wonderfully splendid performance. 
He agrees with the truth of it. But get that same guy talking about python, not the, not the large, non-venomous snake. But I had to read this because this is not my skill set. The high-level, general-purpose, advanced programming language that is interpreted, object-oriented, and built on flexible and robust semantics. Yes. <laughs> right? I can relate with Kyler Murray and his rookie, but, but Python, yeah, don't you know, Google, Pinterest, Instagram, YouTube, Dropbox, NASA, they all use Python. Right? And Jeffrey's like, you know, you're talking my language. And, and the Kyler Murray guy's just like, hmm, right? We get excited about what we love. We get passionate about what we love. And I'm not saying just because we're passionate about sports or passionate about a programming language means we're worshiping those things. But I will say that true worship must involve true affection, true praise, true excitement. And I had to ask myself this question this week. Did I talk about Jesus that way in my house? Did I talk about God relationally with praise to other people? Or did I just talk about churchy stuff and theology and religiosity and standards in the home and out in the public and standards at the... That, was that where it ended? Or was there any sense of relational praise because I know who God is? Because I know God. Look at the title in Psalm 18. The title up top would be italicized probably in your translation. And this same passage has a parallel passage. I'm not going to have you turn there, but it's 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel 22 is 51 verses. Psalm 18 is 50 verses. That's because 2 Samuel 22's first verse is the title not given a verse in Psalm 18. Sounds technical. I want you to read along in Psalm 18, the top of the title, because what, what 2 Samuel is going to do, 2 Samuel is not a wisdom book. It is a historical book. And this is going to help place this in a true, real historical setting in David's life. And I want you to read the title while I read verse 1 of 2 Samuel 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, did you see something similar to that in the title? Okay. This is why David is singing. It is addressed in Psalm 18 to the choir master, suggesting that probably David wrote this as a young warrior, revised it later on, because there are about 72 different small changes between 2 Samuel and Psalm 18. But what probably happened is he penned this immediately after this initial victory, revised it, and then submitted it to be sung in public worship. Okay, so that'll help explain some of those differences if you're reading these two accounts side by side. Of the first 20 Psalms, this one is remarkable for its length. It has more than twice as many verses as the next longest and ten times as many as the shortest. So when you get to this, it's overwhelming. I'm going to try not to overwhelm you with it this morning, uh, but we are going to look at this entire song. For our understanding, for simplicity, there's not going to be this complex outline or this chiastic structure. Uh, I'm simply going to take main titles out of a specific section so that you can track. Here's the first, here's the first one. Verses 1 and 2, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Do you see that? 
Look at how he starts on such a personal note. When David says, I love you, Lord, he's using a unique Hebrew word that conveys deep emotion, intimacy, and closeness. It's a rare word. David begins this song. He doesn't say this, I love theology. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I love this system of theology. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I love to talk about truth. Or I believe in the Jewish writings in this collection of scriptures are contained the attributes of God's love and strength. He doesn't say that. He says to the Lord, I love you, my Lord, my strength. He does believe all those truths, but he personalizes it. It's not theoretical. It's experiential. And we're going to read through the first two verses. And I want you to just kind of make a mental note as if you were highlighting with your mind the word my. And I want you to see that what David is introducing to us is not a systematic theology or a biblical theology. He is introducing to us a God who has become very personal to him. Look at verse one. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. You see the personal nature of that? The same could be said of the Apostle Paul. We're used to him being shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead and deserted. It could be said of the Apostle Paul, as it is of David, that the reason these men knew God so well is because they needed him so often. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 1.10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Have you ever thought right here at the beginning of this psalm that the the danger you are facing or the difficulty or the trial or the pain is actually what God is using out of his toolbox to get you to know him better? We don't typically know God deeper when things are going completely well. When things are going fine. When life is perfect. You know when we start to get to know Him? When we need Him. When we, when we trust in Him through danger, through, through near-death experiences that David is going to talk about. Who has God been to you this week? If you were to say, I love you, O Lord, my strength. You are my... My What? What has he been to you that you say, well, I just haven't needed him? And this is why God will design typically circumstances where you will need him. It's not always a tragedy. It is a divine design so that you get to know him better. David uses several different words to capture two themes in this first section, which, which convey two contexts out of which David is getting to know God. The first theme is military. Look at these words in uh, In the first section, fortress, deliverer, shield, horn, and enemies. Those are military terms. Young men tend to glorify and sensationalize war because of what they see in films or what they play on games. 
Battle-hardened veterans who have seen war, who have been shot at, will not carry the same sensational idea. David would be one of those. William T. Sherman served as a general in the Union Army during the Civil War. His forces burned one-third of the South and completely burned down the city of Atlanta. His cruelty is the stuff of legend. This is not a good man. We're not putting him forward as a moral example. Thirteen years after destroying Atlanta during an 1879 military graduation speech, listen to what Sherman told young men in this military school who had never known battle. This is a new generation of military man who has never seen war. Sherman says this, There is many a boy here who looks on war as all glory. But boys, he paused, war is all hell. You can bear this warning voice to generations to come. This is the context, one of the themes out of which David would come to know God. Military. My fortress, my deliverer, shield, horn, from my enemies. The second theme is wilderness. Look at these terms in the first portion of Psalm 18. Rock, stronghold, refuge, and horn. You know that every year people die in the wilderness. Two young men accused of murder recently in Canada recently tried to find escape in the northern area of Manitoba only to face death themselves. That happened last week. The wilderness was not their friend. Last month, a newlywed woman from Belarus was swept away by a river in Alaska trying to reach an abandoned bus made famous by the book and film Into the Wild. That man whom the story in the book is about also died trying to survive in that bus. The wilderness is hostile. It's unpredictable. It's dangerous. Do you know why David knew God so well? Military wilderness. Okay, how does that translate to us? Because that really falls at our feet, right? Difficult, unnavigated experiences, uncharted paths, difficulties you have never faced before, all designed to get you to know God better. Put those contexts together and you see that God appears and is active in the dangerous settings of life. Matter of fact, for David, he would have been thinking the cave of Adullam or the desert in Maon or the crags of the wild goats. That's what it's called. The crags of the wild goats in En Gedi. He has specific places in mind and he's recounting the victories that God gave to him. Real places, real danger and real divine help. Just take a second to apply that to your life right now. Real difficulty, real pain, real questions, real hurt. But the offer of real divine rescue in knowing who God is. Look at the next section, verses 3 to 19. The Lord who is worthy to be praised. Look at verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Remember what we said. Praise is the natural response from a person who knows God. Or let's, let's turn that. The lack of praise is the natural response of someone who does not know God. Perhaps the absence of any kind of salvation at all. David is praising because he's been saved. We use that term. Saved from his enemies. What about those of us who have been saved from the, latter, the last and the greatest enemy, which is death? Saved from death in Christ. 
Do we praise? Don't miss how David describes his trouble. Look at verses 4 through 6. The cords of death encompass me. Try to create an image in your own mind. What does that look like? The cords of death. For me, it's like these dark vines coming out of the earth and kind of entangling me and pulling me down to the grave. I know, look weird, morbid. David's saying he's tangled. He's caught. Torrents of destruction assailed me. He's drowning. Cords of Sheol entangled me. He's held fast. The snares of death confronted me. He's trapped and a hunter is moving in. These all express physical danger, emotional distress. As a matter of fact, David's going to use that word. Look at verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. This isn't the David that we picture sometimes. This isn't the David we see confronting Goliath. This isn't the David we see enduring an awful internship under an angry spear-throwing king. David is distressed. From his temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Then David moves into what we might call a theophany, this vision of God. We'll call this section dark clouds and consuming fire, verses 7 to 15. Vivid imagery. It's not that David actually saw God like this or that God is these things if you see him. Remember, God is a spirit. David's point is not that he saw this God visually, but when he's looking back, when he's recounting his life, when he's running through the wilderness, when he's in danger, as he looks back, he now sees how God was not passive, not inactive, not disinterested, but God stepped in like this. This passage was read for us this morning. Just look at verse 7 again. The idea really is, if you, if you do a quick survey of Israel's history, you can see how God used the plagues to deliver His people out of Egypt and how God met with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Look at verse 7. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because He was angry. Go all the way down to verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, a possible description of the parting of the sea or on another occasion where where the rivers of Jordan were separated. God was doing this to deliver and rescue his people. You know, there might be sort of that little skeptic in our own heart that says that's the Old Testament God, right? He seems so angry all the time. Okay, that's not like he is in the New Testament. Let me read to you a section in Hebrews 12 from a New Testament writer. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 continues, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Listen to what he says, For our God is a consuming fire. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1, 8-9 describes Jesus in a way that most of us are not exactly comfortable hearing about Him. Paul says that Jesus will return, quote, 
in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Added to that, if you go to the very last book of our 66 books, you have John, the beloved disciple and the apostle of love. And he starts to describe as he's on the Isle of Patmos, a vision that he sees of Jesus Christ. And he sees white hair and priestly garments and flaming eyes and burnished bronze feet indicating judgment and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Do you remember John's response? Because John walked with Jesus for three, three and a half years. John fell down at his feet as a dead person. And Jesus had to put his hand on him and say, don't fear. I am the first and I am the last. And he comforts him with those truths. See, this is part of the nature of God. Psalm 18, Hebrews 12, 1 Thessalonians, Revelation chapter 1. It is part of the nature of God, who he is that is being lost on a soft, entitled, and easily offended culture. But this is who he is. You can't change that. Notice what he says next, because... Because after we see that, now David's going to say that God brought him into a broad place. Verses 16 to 19. Let's just, let's just look at this. And again, I want you to highlight mentally the little words, me and my. This personal God that David is singing about. Look at verse 16. He set from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. Remember earlier he said that he, was, he felt like he was dying and, and the floods were washing over him. He took me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Verse 19, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Notice, we won't go into depth on everything that David is saying, but I want you to notice a progression here. David goes from being hated and an enemy to to merely trying to survive. Notice the progression. Survival to freedom, a broad place. Now he can actually live without being hunted to having honor in the kingdom. Then to kingship. See, you have no idea what God is doing in your life. Your song isn't done. You're not an older David composing and revising a song. Your stanzas are still being penned. You're still singing. You're not sure exactly what God is doing with this right now or how he's going to use that. But there's a progression from mere survival to safety, to honor, to kingship. Those who love God and in whom God delights, that's what he says, because he delighted in me, can look back. You can do this right now. If you delight in God, he delights in you. You can look back and you can start to see how God is, is using every single detail in your life to mold you into the image of his son. With that, we need this reminder, verses 20 to 29, the goodness of God. The second part of the song, I mean, we're just going to put it out because we've only got about 10 minutes left. Here's the structure. Verses 20 to 24, five verses that speak about God. Verses 25 to 29, five verses that are addressed to God specifically. Then five more verses in 30 to 34 that speak about him. And then finally, 35 to 45, 11 verses that speak to him. Do you see this progression? We speak about God and we speak to God. 
That's what uh, Boswell, we sang one of Matt Boswell's songs this morning. He says that worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. We hear the truths about God. We sing to God. We hear God's word preached. We obey God. So it's this beautiful rhythm of revelation and response. Here Here are the first five verses that speak about God. Verses 20 to 24. Let's just read these. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Notice three, three times David is going to alternate between things that he has done and things that he has kept himself from doing. Now, don't make the wrong conclusion. Don't think that David is presenting an Old Testament salvation by works of righteousness. No one is justified by the works of the law. No one. So what is he doing? Let's keep reading. I have kept the ways of the Lord and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. Did you see those three alternates? So look at verse 24. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. I really believe this is what David is putting forward in this song. It's the same thing James, James will challenge easy believism in his day when he's writing a letter. And he will say, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. I will show you my faith by my works, James said. God delighted in David and showed him undeserved grace. As a matter of fact, David is probably capturing what God, the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God, said to the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy 7. Let me read this to you. God says this to the nation of Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you know why God loves David? Because God loves David. You know why God loves you? And there is no list that you can create that will impress God or turn his affection toward you. God loves you because he loves you. He is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. David's actions are not what make the relationship, but what happens from a relationship that has already been formed. That's what David is saying. Here is the proof. I'm delighting in God. I'm keeping his word. I'm not doing things to bring excessive guilt on myself, though we see in David's life later on he did. I've not done these things. Works save no one, but don't make the mistake of saying that works are unimportant. As Michael Wilcox states in his commentary, it is in fact a confidence that those who out of love for the Lord want to walk in the ways of the Lord will find that the blessing of the Lord will come to meet them there. God delights to reward obedience. Whom whom the Lord loves, if that is reciprocated, as Jesus said, you are my friends if you what? If you do whatsoever I command you. That's the relationship. 
Verses 25 to 29, God saves the humble. There's this progression moving forward. Here are five verses to God. And what David says to God is actually what David believes about God. So let's look at verse 25. And you got to really this was read by one of our uh, by one of our music team people this morning. But I want you to hear. I want you to see the straightness and the crookedness here. Okay, verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. Okay, sort of a, a repetition of the same idea three times. This is this is really who God is. But look, look what happens in the latter part of verse 26. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. Let me, let me put that in common language. God will appear as though he is being crafty and deceptive with those who are crafty and deceptive. He is not. God does not lie. God is upright. But with the crooked, here's the idea. He makes himself seem crooked. How do you explain that? It's really the law of sowing and reaping. There's really a hope in this text about God is not letting anyone get away with evil. It's the proverb that says the person who digs a pit will what? Fall into it. God was being upright, but he sure seemed crooked by letting that come back on him. He who rolls a stone to try to crush someone with a boulder will what? He will be hit by it. Well, that seems crooked. No, it's not. It seems crooked to the crooked man, but that's because of the ways that God is dealing with him. Look at verse 27. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. So God is the resource of, of, of his enjoyment in his life. The Lord God, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. And, and really quick on these two statements. For by you I can run against a troop. Okay, God, this is God's help against people. And by my God I can leap over a wall. That is God's help against things. God delivers from people. And God delivers from things or contexts or situations. Perhaps David is thinking of his defeat of the Amalekite raiders in 1 Samuel 30 or his capture of the Jebusite city of Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5. Look back, recount the specific ways God has helped you and he has allowed you to overcome people. The people that push against you, that hate you, as David would say, and he's allowed you to come uh, to accomplish and have victory over things. Look at verses 30 to 34. God is the rock. Five more verses that speak about God. And what's interesting about this section is the prominence is David's military action. He's actually going to say things like, I thrust them through with my sword. Okay. But it is made very clear at the beginning that his help came entirely from God. Look at verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. How do you take refuge in God? How would you counsel someone this morning who's in danger or difficulty or trouble? How would you say this is how you take refuge in God? Because from Psalm 1 to 18, this idea, that picture of refuge in God has been used repeatedly. How do you find safety in God? Let's say your circumstances will never change. 
Let's say that antagonist that irritates you at the office never goes away. Let's say the pain of a previous hurt lingers and stays. How do you take refuge in God? Verse 30. Trust him. His way is perfect. It doesn't seem perfect. No, it doesn't seem perfect, but his way is perfect. Not only trust him, but immerse yourself in his word. The word of the Lord proves true. Don't answer this. I'm going to ask you a question. How much scripture have you read since last Sunday? Not devotional books. Not what other people say about the word. Not sermons, not your podcasts, not blog sites. You took the scriptures, you opened it. How much? And could that not be the very reason you're having difficulty trusting Him? Trust Him. His way is perfect. Immerse yourself in His Word. The Word of the Lord proves true. And third, how do you take refuge? You let Him fight for you. The New Testament idea, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Let Him fight for you. Look at what it says. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Look at verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. David is saying all these military victories, when people are singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. David is saying that victory is attributed only to who? To God. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament said in Philippians 4, chapter 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Finally, David has made the head of the nations in verses 35 to 45, 11 verses to God. Again, I want you to notice the pronouns. Let's let's just read this again. Verse 35, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Look at verse 39, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me. I destroyed verse 43. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. It's God who did it. This God-centeredness of David is contagious. It does say this. We didn't read this. Look at verse 41. They cried for help, but there was none to save. That could be inanimate idols. But then it changes. They cried to the Lord. What does it say next? What's the next phrase? But he did what? He did not answer them. Do you know that idea of God not answering is throughout the Bible? Let me read you just three examples. Proverbs 21, 13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. 
Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but He will not answer them. Instead, He will hide His face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. See, we are not saved by works, but works matter. Revelation 6, 12 to 17 When you open the sixth seal, of course, you have these people and the kings of the earth are crying out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand and the rocks don't even listen to them. Finally, we end with this verses 46 to 50 unfailing kindness. It's a great place to end (laughs) after that. Theophany of who God is, and after this, this battle, these battle stratagems, look at what he says in verse 46. All these points are being built up. The various themes of distress, deliverance, and victory now point to praise and thanksgiving to God. Verse 46, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from mine enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. And that's it. That's the psalm. Rescue, great victories, unfailing kindness forever. In one place, The Apostle Paul alludes back to Psalm 18. It is in the incredible chapter of Romans 15 where the gospel is spreading and saving people from their sin. Not just Jews now, but Gentiles. The Apostle Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Christ became a man, a Jewish man, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So something about Jesus' life on this earth confirms the whole salvation history that led up to that point. Verse 9, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His, for his mercy, as it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 18, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. People who know God, praise God. People who know God experientially sing to Him. And even if you don't have a good voice, that singing comes out of your heart. Close your scriptures and I'm going to invite the worship team forward and I'm going to read one final passage out of Revelation. After this, I looked, Revelation 7, verse 9 to 10. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Psalm 18, in its various ways of distress and deliverance, point us to Jesus Christ who delivers and rescues and saves by His grace.